0: forbearance, and forgiveness. Who among us hasn't been hurt by the words or actions of another person? I think we all know what it's like to somehow be injured by the words or actions of another person. A recent study showed that among those surveyed, 62% of American adults say they need, they personally need more forgiveness in their personal lives, 62%. Psalm 133 verse one says, Behold how good it is and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. There's a lot of people that are hungry to know firsthand what that is and what it's like, good and pleasant to dwell together in unity. I think the two things that Colossians chapter 3 verse 13 identifies for us, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, makes that environment of unity, blessedness, pleasantness possible. We're ever going to know the blessedness and the pleasantness of unity and being in one mind and one accord. It's going to be because we've made a conscious effort to bear with one another and to forgive one another. Forgiveness, forbearance, are at the very core, the very core of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to look at some of the places in Scripture that teach us something about these topics. I've already read from Psalms 133, but I want to take your attention to Proverbs quickly. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11, says this, The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. That's Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. I would turn your attention in the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 4. I'll remind you that Ephesians chapter 4 is a chapter that deals a lot with spiritual gifts and spiritual growth. But at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, there's an introductory section that leads into everything that Paul's going to write about spiritual gifts and spiritual growth later in the chapter. Ephesians chapter four, verse one says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And from there, the chapter begins a lengthy discussion about those topics of spiritual gifts and spiritual maturity and everything that it means whenever you start to grow as a Christian. And then at the very end of the chapter where the chapter breaks and chapter 4 ends and chapter 5 begins, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 comes back to that thing that it started with and it says, be, and be kind, he says all these things about the gifts and growth and maturity and he comes back and he says in verse 32, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. Look at that first verse in Ephesians chapter four, if you've got your Bible open or your device pointed to it. Ephesians chapter four, verse one, uses that phrase, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. That means that in your life, your conduct is in balance with your calling. I'm not talking about a calling necessarily to leadership in the church or a preaching or teaching ministry in public settings like we're in right now, but the Apostle Paul is talking about a call to discipleship, a call away from the way that the world lives, and a call to emulate and imitate the walk and the life of Jesus Christ. And he says, you've been called with that calling as a disciple, as one who is called upon to follow Jesus, and your conduct needs to be brought into alignment with that calling. It needs to bring equilibrium to your life. It means that you're being conformed to the image of Christ. We know we're in Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, Do not be conformed to this world. And certainly we have to reject the conformity that the world tries to impress on us. And there's ways in which the world lives that we are not allowed to live as Christians. But it's not enough to reject the ways of the world. We must also look to Christ and say, I'm not going to just reject the conformity to the world, but I'm going to embrace being conformed to him. I'm going to walk worthy of the calling that I've been called to. And it's worth saying, just so that no one gets overly aggravated and frustrated, that what I'm talking about about bringing your life into alignment with the calling of God to follow him is not an automatic response when you're born again. It takes work. It takes conscious effort. Sometimes when we're reading in passages like Ephesians or Colossians where we started out a moment ago, we can see some of these sentences and paragraphs where Paul or Peter or whomever in the New Testament where they're writing and saying, you know, you need to treat one another right. You need to be tenderhearted. You need to be patient. You need to be humble. You need to forgive one another. You need to bear with one another. And we just, maybe it's just me, but sometimes we read through those as just throwaway material because what we really want to get to is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. What we really want to get to is the discussion about the gifts of the Spirit or something that seems deeper than those words. But those things in Ephesians 4, for instance, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, they're what holds it all together. All the gifts and all the maturity and all the deep things and all the things that we're supposed to point ourselves towards and give ourselves over to and pursue, it's bearing with one another and forgiving one another that holds it all together. Those are the bookends. Those are the guardrails of the whole operation. Now, Paul in Ephesians, I I can't get away from Ephesians right now, Paul in Ephesians, in the verses that we read a moment ago, he's writing to a church that's very diverse. The church in Ephesus was made up, like many churches in that day, of people that were Jews and Gentiles, which means that in a congregation, there would be those who had lived their life prior to being converted to Christianity. They'd lived their life under the law, in the Old Testament law. They'd lived... As, a, as an observing Jew, somebody that came up under Judaism. And then you would have another group of people, you'd have a whole other section of the congregation that were Gentiles. They, they hadn't lived according to the Old Testament law. They weren't even really aware of what the Old Testament law told the Jews, the Hebrews in the Old Testament to do. And they converted into Christianity from secular paganism or idol worship. You couldn't be any further apart. And now all of a sudden, they've been converted. They've answered the call to discipleship. They're doing their best to follow Jesus. They've been born again of the water and of the Spirit, and they've been thrown together in the same church. Imagine. just I know that's way back in history. So let's, let's do a thought experiment. And let's just get right, let's see if we can imagine a modern scenario. And and don't think I'm being sacrilegious or or plotting some weird thing. But let's just do an experiment and think. Let's Let's say there's a Catholic church. They do things differently than we do. Let's say there's a Catholic church. Let's say there's a Buddhist temple. And let's say there's a Jewish synagogue in our area. And by the mighty hand of God, there's a sovereign move of the Holy Ghost. And all three of those congregations convert. They all see the new birth. They all see the revelation of the mighty God in Christ. And they convert, right? And now all of a sudden, and let's say, for whatever reason, they have to start attending here on site. Okay. So let's say we pick up let's say we pick up 20 of each group. 25 of each group. Starts and they start attending here. Right? There's going to be some bearing with one another. We'd have to have some meetings to make sure that our conduct was gonna be right towards one another, that we're gonna set the right kind of example for the newcomers, and then we're gonna have to have a whole separate half of the meeting where we talk about, okay, these are some of the challenges we're gonna face together. They're coming from this point of view and they're coming from this point of view and there's parts of what they believe and what they've always practiced that's gonna have to change and conform, but then there's parts of the way that they live That's not necessarily sinful, it's just different. And we're gonna have to just bear with that. Can you imagine what the first potluck would be like? Right? I mean, you get somebody that's been an observing Jew their whole life, and the first barbecue we have, I mean, that's real. And I know that's just a hypothetical that we've kind of kind of just pulled out of thin air. But they're coming. They're coming. And they may not come from a religious background like the three groups that I just mentioned. We just, talked, we just pulled them out of thin air, you know, I, I, observing Catholics, observing Jews, and observing Buddhists. Those are just the religious folks. Then you've got the secular people that don't have a background in any kind of religion or any kind of organized worship of any kind to any kind of God. And what, what kind of values and what kind of lifestyle and what kind of habits and what kind of things are they bringing into the table? And how much of that has to change to get into alignment with what God's doing in their life and to get into alignment with what the Bible teaches about living and how much of it is just gonna be just different. And it's just not gonna be what we're used to, but it's not sinful. They're coming. They're coming. They've been coming. They're here. It's happening. Whether entire groups or one at a time, they're coming. And if we're gonna receive the harvest of these next few years and the season that we're in and moving into, these virtues that the Apostle Paul and others write about, they've got to be written into our spirit. We've got to bear with one another. We've got to have a forgiving spirit. Jesus himself said that there's no limits to it. The apostles came to him. Peter said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, Jesus said to him, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another helps three things, and these are the three things I want, I want us to focus our attention on tonight. Focuses on three things. It helps your health, and it helps your, our unity, and it helps Your ministry. Your ministry. Let me explain what I mean. Forgiveness fights for your health. I think that's on the handout. Fights for your health. I'm just starting at the real surface level area here, if that's okay. I'm talking about your literal physical health. I looked, I looked the other day, and I went to the Mayo Clinic website because they put it in terms that I can understand. Forgiving can lead to less anxiety, less stress, less hostility, fewer symptoms of depression, lower blood pressure, a stronger immune system, improved heart health, and improved self-esteem. That's the Mayo Clinic. Holding grudges and being offendable can lead to anger and bitterness that you don't just carry around with you, but you actually bring into new relationships. You actually bring it in. That saying, no matter where you go, there you are. Holding grudges and being offendable means you can become so wrapped up in the wrong that you can't enjoy the present. And it can cause you to become irritable or anxious or depressed. And, and, and we can branch off into a whole bunch of other little categories. But it has real effects on your physical health. And forgiveness and bearing with one another fights for your health. It's your weapon against bitterness. If you, d- if you struggle with bitterness and not being able to let things go, it might be time to prayerfully do a study, a Bible study yourself on what the scriptures have to say about bearing with one another and forgiving one another because that's where the freedom that you're looking for is at. Here's the other thing. It fights for unity. This is the second category. It fights for our unity. It's really easy to become offended by worldly values and practices. All you have to do is watch the news, listen to the radio, get on the internet, you're going to see something that the world's doing that gets under your skin. You're going to be offended by it. It's going to be off-putting to you in the least. And and you have to know this. You you have to know this too. As legitimate as your offense to some of the things that goes on in the world is, and as, as, as right as you are to be offended about those things and to not like them and to give those the, the thumbs down, you have to know that there's an int- there are entire industries built around keeping you angry. Have you realized that? There's entire algorithms built around keeping you in a constant state of outrage. If, <laughs> I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a technology I don't know everything there is to know about technology, but I will tell you this. If you use social media and the social media algorithm detects and follows that when you are presented with a certain type of content, that it gets a certain type of response out of you, it will keep throwing that content in front of you. And it's not that more of it is happening in the world necessarily, it's that more of it is being presented to you. Because that's how they keep you coming back so that they can run more advertisements and make more money off of you. You're the product. <laughs> so anyways, that's my, that's my technology rant. There's entire industries built around making you mad and keeping you angry. And keeping you fired up and keeping you at a simmer of just being outraged and offended. And it doesn't take very long of being engaged to figure that out. It's really easy to become offended by those things. And I want to turn your attention to the word of the Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It wasn't quite the world that we live in today, but there's similar things. And I I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 32. verse 31 says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. I want to read that to you in the New Living Translation again, like I did earlier in Colossians, because I don't want any part of it to be missed in the middle of some of the wordiness. The New Living Translation in First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says this, So whether you eat or drink, because they were having some disputes about that kind of stuff. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or to the church of God. I, too, try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. That was Paul's approach. Paul wasn't a people pleaser. He's not saying I'm a people pleaser and I, I, I have my whole life dictated to me by the, this fear of man that I have. But he's saying, I, I'm gonna do things that's for the upbuilding and the profit of others. Let me, let me say this. That kind of attitude of being able to stay to stay. Focused on what God is doing at any given time in the world around us and staying on mission and staying to where we're, we're looking for people to invest in. We're looking to make disciples. We're looking to fulfill the Great Commission. We're looking for the church to be the church. That kind of mentality that you live with every day comes from a place of knowing what is essential and knowing what is flexible. Not everything is essential. Some things are flexible. Now I know I know this is not probably what we do on Sunday morning, but this is the Wednesday night. This is this is the Wednesday night group, and so we're able to talk about how sometimes the scriptures give us things that are essential and non-negotiable. And if you've been around me or you've heard me preach or teach, or or just talk to me very long, you can probably you. I hope you have a good sense of what I feel like are non-negotiable topics. The new birth experience is non-negotiable and essential. The oneness of God is non-negotiable and essential. Living a life that's holy and separated unto the Lord is non-negotiable. It's not up for debate. It's essential. God's word being infallible and being the final authority for life and doctrine. That's that's not up for debate. Spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting and time in the word, those are things that are not just optional accessories onto our life. They're things that are absolutes that we must have. The structure of things like we talked about in February, the structure of marriage and family and gender and, and those kinds of things, those are etched in stone. Those are non-negotiable and essential things. And I'm probably I, I, I shouldn't even start listing things because I'm afraid I I missed something. But if you've been around here and you've been around me any length of time, I think you probably know that there are a multitude of things that qualify as essential doctrines and things of life that God is calling us into. But there are areas, there are areas and there are topics and there are things where I will be patient And flexible and forgiving for the sake of a soul. I will not be offended by non-essential differences. I believe God will give revelation in essential things, whether that's in prayer, whether it's in personal study, whether it's in a Bible study, whether it's in a service like this, where the Word of God is being taught or preached. Either we believe the Holy Ghost gives revelation or we don't. Whoever is preaching or teaching, whether it's in a setting like this or whether it's in a Bible study, we do not have the ability to flip the light switch and give revelation. The Holy Ghost has to do a work in somebody's life. And I just have to have faith that the Spirit of God is going to do what he says he will do, and that when somebody is hungry and searching for truth and searching for revelation and in something that's essential, that God will do what only he can do, and he's going to take care of it. I'm not going to insert myself in the place of God and try to negotiate out non-essential things that the Holy Ghost needs to give revelation about. Let's go back to what Bishop Williams talked about Sunday night. If you were here, he talked for a little while at the conclusion of the service about Sarah and Hagar. And the trouble arose in Genesis chapter 16, 17, when the promise wasn't being delivered on man's timeline. And Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands. What was the territory of only God, they decided to insert themselves into. They put Hagar in the mix. Ishmael ended up being born, and there was a lot of conflict, and there was a lot of strife. What they needed to do was they needed to bear with one another and forgive one another. Bishop Williams said it. He, He helped us just imagine it and asked us that provoking question. What would have happened if Abraham and Sarah would have reached down deep into their spiritual reservoir and said, you know what? There was a mistake that was made. There's there something that should have never taken place. But instead of casting Hagar and Ishmael out into the wilderness and writing them off, I'm going to bear with it. I'm going to forgive it. I'm going to bring them back into the fold. We're going to just see what God will do in the middle of all this mess that we've created. There's just no telling what may have happened. There's people that are going to be brought into the church, brought into the kingdom. There's a great harvest, a great outpouring of the Holy Ghost. It's happening in our world right now, and it's going to continue to happen. And there's going to be people that come into the kingdom that do not have a background like we had, maybe you had when you came into the kingdom. You may have had a foundation of some sense of morality, of some sense of right and wrong. You may have even attended church as a child a little bit and been familiar with the ins and outs and some of the culture of of what it is to worship the Lord and and at least been around church. But there are people, mark my words, there are people coming into the kingdom of God right now and in the days ahead that don't have any background in any of those things. They don't have a structure of thinking the way that maybe you thought even when you were lost and in your sins, you may have known there was a right and wrong. You may have had some kind of structure built in, but there's people coming into the kingdom that don't have any of those things, and we cannot take those things for granted. We're going to have to bear with one another We're going to have to forgive one another. I can tell you for me, I want them in the building. I want them in your Bible study. I want us to be discerning. I don't want us to just let anything go. There are essential things and there are non-negotiable things, but we must have an open-door policy. If they have questions about the faith, I want them. If they have doubts about the faith, I want them. If they have past hurts, I want them. If they've got baggage and labels, I want them. I want them in one of your Bible studies. I want them in Sunday and Wednesday church with us. And I want to declare the gospel to them and cover them in prayer and just see what the Holy Ghost will do. We will not be offended. We're going to connect them into the body and let the Holy Ghost do what only he can do. We aren't going to turn it into a circus. We are going to compromise on essential doctrine. But we will give enough latitude so people can know God and start to grow. There's an element of this that even just exists in, in, in the church. Go back to 1 Corinthians and look at chapter 6 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, this is not a passage you're probably going to hear preached a lot on a Sunday morning. But on a Wednesday night, this is the perfect setting to go to a passage like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And here's what the word of the Lord says in verse 1. The apostle Paul writes and he says, "'Dare any of you, having matter against another, "'go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? "'Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? "'And if the world be judged by you, "'are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? "'Do you not know that we shall judge angels?' how much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? He said, you're going to take disputes and things that happen within the church and within the brotherhood, you're gonna take those to an outside authority when you, when you, in the world to come, are going to judge the world and judge angels? Is there not even one among you who might be able to step in and mediate and, and make a righteous judgment and say, you know what, this seems like a circumstance where we just need to bear with one another, where we need to forgive one another, where we all just need to take a step back and get along and maintain the unity of the faith, this forgiveness and bearing with one another thing, it fights for our unity if we'll let it. Verse 7 says, Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that go to the law against one another. He said, Why would you rather not just accept the wrong? Why do you not rather just let yourself be cheated? as opposed to going to the outside and letting the unrighteous judge matters of the kingdom he said no you do yourselves wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived now this let's go back let's just admit that there's some of these passages in these epistles that we kind of blow through sometimes maybe it's just me but we want to get to the the section that says, "Do you not know that neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor homosexuals nor sodomites nor thieves nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God?" And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's powerful. But look at everything that precedes it that pertains not just to doctrine of being saved but to life in the church bearing with one another forgiving he says wouldn't you wouldn't it be better if you just took the hit you know the part of us that doesn't like that it's our flesh That's the part of us that doesn't like that. When we see the Apostle Paul writing and saying, taking what feels like such an extreme stance and saying, you'd be better off just being cheated out of something than go and insert unrighteous authority, unrighteous judgment into the matters of the kingdom. Offense is an event, but being offended is a decision. Sister Courtney always reminds me that being offended is not a fruit of the spirit. She reminds me of that sometimes. and She's right. I'd rather be inconvenienced than cause injury to the unity of the church. I'd rather be cheated. I'd rather get the short end of the stick. I'd rather have to take the hit than do something to compromise the unity of the body. I'd rather endure a wrong and win a soul than have my way every time and hold back a harvest. What's the Proverbs say? We read it a moment ago. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. The glory of a man is to overlook a temptation or a transgression. There's, that's, where the, that's where the glory lives. All those things that the Apostle Paul goes on to write about spiritual gifts and spiritual power and tearing down strongholds and growing up into the fullness of the stature of what Christ is and being mature in God and being deep in the things of God. The glory of all those things is in when we choose to overlook a transgression, when we choose to bear with one another, that's where the power is. That's where the spark gets lit for all the things that God wants to do. Let me give you five reasons to overlook an offense. This, this is just for free. This is something I, I almost didn't include, but I just wanted to include it because these are five good reasons to overlook an offense because some, some hear that and they're like, oh, I don't know. It's really tough and I, I need some reasons. Do it for the sake of the gospel. It just makes sense to do it. When, that's when you care more about God's glory than our own reputation, my own convenience, my own rights. Secondly, it makes you own your sin, and that's good for you. It's that whole log in your eye thing. We can't go and pull the the speck out of someone else's eye. We need to deal with the log in our own eye. Sometimes when we get offended and we choose to be offended, it's one of those moments. It's one of the splinters in in someone's eye and the log in your own. And whenever we overlook a transgression, it helps us start to just kind of own our sin. Not own it as like I'm going to get my identity wrapped in it, but like acknowledging it is what I'm talking about and saying, you know what? Yeah, I've got some work to do. I need to be forgiven too. Number three, another reason to overlook an offense is that it means that God's spirit is working. The Holy Ghost is working. It, you, this is the mature way of looking at it, but I think we're in a mature group right now, so I'm gonna say it like this. Sometimes whenever we have an opportunity to be offended, if we will choose to overlook it and deal with it the right way, it's a growth opportunity. It's a growth opportunity for you. Number four, overlooking an offense, it frees you in a sense, it frees you, it sets you free from approval seeking. It's really not a healthy way to live, to just live totally for the approval of other people. It's, you're not really gonna have a lot of success living for God that way. And whenever you choose to overlook an offense, your, your joy gets unhitched from what others think about you. Some people have their joy so rooted and embedded in what other people think about them. And when people start to think poorly of them or speak poorly of them, you just see their joy evaporate because that's, that's the substance of everything that they're rooting their life in. But whenever you choose to overlook an offense and you choose to take it as a growth opportunity, the Holy Ghost is working in your life, and all of a sudden your joy is able to live in the middle of trials. Your joy is able to live in circumstances where not everyone agrees with something you're doing. But you can still have joy. Look in the book of Acts. At the very beginning, chapters three, four, and five. Whenever Peter and John are preaching, and and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish elites, they're they're getting all kinds of fired up because there there's healings taking place, and there's all kinds of disruption going on because the miraculous has been set loose, and Jesus is being preached, and they haul those fellas in, and they say, guys, you got to stop preaching about Jesus. You have to stop. You have to stop it, and and. One of them says, we'd rather obey God rather than men. And when they cut them loose, the scripture says that they counted it all joy. They knew they were probably going to get hassled again the next day and that nothing about the road ahead of them was going to be easy because there was an entire establishment that disapproved of what they were doing. But they were able to have joy in what they were doing because they weren't living just for their approval of other people. Number five is, this is so important, when you overlook an offense, you get better at forgiving like Jesus forgives you. Forgiveness is a major part of spiritual warfare in these last days. And that brings me to my third third point tonight. Forbearance and forgiveness, it fights for souls fights for souls. It doesn't just fight for your health. It doesn't just fight for our unity, but it actively wages spiritual warfare for souls. Unforgiveness is a spirit of the Antichrist. Unforgiveness is a spirit of the Antichrist. Quick-temperedness, quick to throw away, quick to dismiss, it seeks to divide to sow discord, to build resentment, to keep people isolated, and to hinder cooperation in the kingdom. The spirit of Antichrist is opposed to forgiveness. Maybe I need to take a step back and, and, and point you to 1 John. 1 John tells us, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. The Antichrist is not some figure out in the distant future that's only going to arrive on the scene in the very end times. But the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world today. And one of the things that the spirit of the Antichrist opposes the most is the topics that I'm discussing with you tonight. Bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. Because if the Antichrist spirit can remove those things from the vocabulary and the life of the church, then the church will become disunified, the church will lose its power, and the church will cease to be the church. The world doesn't want to allow forgiveness. Satan is operating... And working out any forgiveness out of people's hearts. If you've watched the news the past five years and kept up with anything going on in popular culture, you'll find that not only is there industries committed to anger and outrage, but there's entire industries committed to canceling people altogether. Deplatforming people altogether. That's the spirit of the Antichrist working itself out and removing any idea of forgiveness from our world. And we cannot allow it to infiltrate the church. The world is being, by the Antichrist, being set at odds with one another. We've never lived in a time where our country, even just our country, we're not even talking about globally but just within our borders, where people seem so far apart on so many things and so unable to reconcile any of it whatsoever and so unwilling to have any kind of dialogue or conversation whatsoever. And it's a result of the times that we're living in. And we must, I'll say it again, we must not allow that to infiltrate the church sowing division and disunity and hate and just mean-spirited behavior towards other people. And it's in the darkness of all those things that the church is going to shine the brightest because we have a different message. Forgiveness is our great witness to the world. Forgiveness is the top export of the church. I know that the spiritual gifts are important. I know that there's a lot of things that, that shine and that's distinctive about us as a people, but hear me tonight. In the days to come, one of the things that is going to make us the most different from the world around us is going to be our ability to bear with one another and forgive one another. And not just to do it within our own ranks, but to do it to anybody that's approaching and coming into the kingdom. We're different. We don't kill our wounded. We aren't going to kick each other while we're down. We know some of each other's faults and sins, but as long as we're repented, we're going to remain in fellowship with one another, despite all of that. We're not going to bite and devour one another, and we aren't in competition with one another to choke one another out. You can go no further than the book of Romans. In the second half of the book of Romans, and you can start to see some of the things that the Apostle Paul was launching out in the Holy Ghost, launching out into the pagan world, into the secular world that he lived in and that he was writing to in Rome. Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. Here's what he says. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Romans chapter 14, verse 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Romans chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. When we behave the way, when our, when our conduct gets into alignment with the calling that God has placed on us and we start to walk worthy of the calling that he has called us to and we start to imitate the behavior and the life and the mind of Christ in the ways that we interact with one another in the body and even those that are outside of the body that are wondering what it's like and what the church is all about and have questions and have doubts and have baggage and have hurts, when we start to imitate Christ in those ways, it eats up the adversary. And so today I'm advocating for bearing with one another and forgiving one another because it is powerful. Satan can't stand it. It's a weapon. It's our witness. The garment of forbearance and forgiveness is your witness, to the world. And if you want to push against the Antichrist spirit that's working over our world today, find someone to forgive. Grant some latitude to somebody. Romans chapter 12, verse 20, gives us some application. Here's what it says verse 17 Romans 12:17 says repay no one evil for evil have regard for good things in the sight of all men if it is possible as much depends on you live peaceably with all men beloved do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Sister Kelly, if you would come to the keys. If you want the gears of revival and harvest to be turning in your family and in your friend's group, do something unexpected. Set up a Bible study with that person that no one expects you to connect with, that no one thinks you have anything in common with, that may even have some practices and some views, that might even offend you if you were going to allow yourself to become offended by them. Start to pray for that person you don't get along with. There's been ministers that's told stories over this pulpit about people that they worked with that they they didn't get along with, they didn't like one another, They didn't have anything in common. They'd been at odds with one another. But the Lord directed them to start praying for that person. And as they started to pray for that person, say, God, give them favor on their job. Bless their family. Bless their marriage. Bless their finances. God, make sure they have everything they need. And as they started praying for that person, the Lord did a work in their heart. It wasn't just a work in their heart, but it was a work in that other person's heart. We believe that there's some things the Holy Ghost just has to do. Start to pray for that person that you really might not care for a whole lot. Maybe do an act of kindness. Send a note, send a gift, send an invitation. Maybe it starts with just showing interest. Ask questions, remember details, show concern, keep up with them, follow up with them. I want to invite you over to the house. I want to have a better relationship with you. I know those words, they seem so out of place and foreign. You mean I should be forward enough to actually initiate a conversation and say words like that? It seems so out of place. It seems so forward. It seems so different than what I'm used to. You want the gears of revival and harvest to start to turn in your world those are some of the things that we can start to do. Let's stand all over this place right now. I pray right now as we lift up our hands toward heaven, I pray that a burden would hit you right now for a person in your life. I pray that a burden would hit somebody right now and that even as we stand and even as we start to stretch our legs and we lift up our hands toward heaven, that these altars would be open and that someone would make a move and say, you know what? It's worth a soul to me. It's worth a soul. I need to do something that's that's maybe a little bit out of my comfort zone. Would you find a place of prayer right now and seeking the Lord and just pray, God, give me a burden. Give me a passion for souls. Give me a passion for unity right now. I pray that a burden would hit somebody right now and that they would start to feel the Holy Ghost, deal with them about somebody that's in their life, somebody that's in their world, somebody on the job, somebody in their neighborhood, somebody that's even a member of their family. You need to warm up some coals of fire tonight at this altar and say, God, I want to heap some things up onto somebody. I want to do something. I want to just set the stage to let the Holy Ghost do what only he can do. God, there's some things that you're going to have to open their heart. You're going to have to change their mind. You're going to have to start to move things around in their life. But Lord, I can pray for them right now. I can call out their name in prayer and speak blessing over them. I can think of a kind word to say to them tomorrow. I can think of something to do that's maybe going to be unexpected, but I can invite them into my life. I can say, I want to have a better relationship with you. I'd like to sit down and talk about the word of God with you. I'd like to see you start to do more in your life than what has been going on in your world. I just think the hand of God might be on you and your family and that God might be up to something in your world. Won't you sit down with me for lunch? Won't you pray with me for a moment and let me speak words of blessing?